Before 1954, November 11th was Armistice Day, marking the end of fighting in the First World War. But then it was renamed Veterans Day when Congress tried to turn it into a nationalistic celebration of war. But what about our veterans? Today, four times as many troops and veterans die by suicide as by combat. What about that deep moral injury and the continued U.S. war culture? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When we picture the effects of war... What comes to mind are the many photographs of cities and villages burned out, bombed out, people wailing, bodies lying about in fields, and various states of decomposition, the physical destruction. But what can't be pictured is an incredibly powerful aspect that is invisible yet devastating and often lasts a lifetime. It's often the so-called winners who experience this deep wound people who have every reason to see themselves as good, moral people. Many of us who have never been in a war just see these veterans as heroes. We thank them for their service. Yet they're often suffering deeply and in silence. Their wounds are not visible, and the pain can last decades, if not a lifetime, if left unseen and unaddressed. After years of living with them, they far too often take the lives of these good, moral men and women. Heroes and yet also badly injured victims. Today, we'll look behind the obvious and examine what our guest calls moral injury. For some, the suffering is truly unbearable, and suicide is seen as the only solution. Today, our guest is Kelly Denton Bohaug, who has long been investigating how religion and violence collide in the American war culture. She teaches global religions uh, at Moravian University. She's the author of two books, U.S. War Culture, Sacrifice and Salvation, and more recently, And Then Your Soul is Gone, Moral Injury and U.S. War Culture. Thank you very much for being with us, Kelly. I'm so happy to be on your program. Thank you. Well, a previous guest on on Keeping Democracy Live, Catherine Stewart, author of the important book, which I urge you to read, called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, writes of this book, all too often, as she shows, notions of masculinity and nationalism, along with the rhetoric of sacrifice, obscure the consequences of brutality and atrocity. Moral injury is a thoughtful exploration of structural and cultural violence and its devastating impact on national identity. End of her quote. We want to believe we are good people. These veterans are good people who sign up for service with nothing but the best of intentions. 
That's why what they experience is so painful. Our, our guest's essay on Tom Dispatch is titled Moral Injury and the Forever Wars, What Americans Don't Want to Hear. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And according to a new study published in the Military Times, over 30,000 global war on terror veterans have died by suicide compared to just over 7,000 who have died while deployed in support of the global war on terror. In other words, four times as many troops and vets have died by suicide as in combat. Why is this? You, you write that all the flag-waving, homespun parades, the picnics and military bands, the flowery speeches and self-congratulatory messages can't dispel a reality, a truth that's right under our noses. All is not well with our military brothers and sisters. The question of why so many of our military brothers and sisters are taking their own lives is not, some, is, is not something most people are eager to look at. How did you come to write this book? Thanks for that question. And as you mentioned, yes, this is, um, this is investigation that I've been involved with for really quite a long time. Um, I'm a religious studies scholar, and um, my attention first was riveted by what I've come to call sacrificial U.S. war culture not long after the events of 9-11. And as we all know, now that's just about 20 years ago. Uh, we are remembering the 20th anniversary of those events this September. That's sobering in and of itself. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, in the period just before 9-11 took place, um, I had been um, deep, deeply immersed in um, literature that focused on uh, metaphors and uh, images of sacrifice in a particular kind of Christian theology. And the destructive impact of sacrifice, especially upon marginalized populations, um, in the lives of women, in the lives of people of color, um, in the lives of the poor. And uh, so that was the work that I was doing. Um, but then 9-11 took place. And uh, as I, I hope your listeners know, at least <laughs> those who are um, of a certain age, <laughs> such as myself, our culture really shifted in the United States. Uh, very quickly, it was determined uh, by our leaders that we were going to war. And um, I noticed how the rhetoric shifted in our culture. All of a sudden, everywhere I heard that war was a, quote, necessary sacrifice. And, and then as we, as we went to war, and um, as people continued to talk about what that meant, um, I heard the language of uh, our, our military service members, quote, making the ultimate sacrifice in what they did. And, and all too frequently, and I remember seeing this extremely explicitly, especially in the rhetoric of leaders like uh, George W. Bush, mm -hmm. language of the ultimate sacrifice of members of the military was completely uncritically elided with the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus makes on the cross, again, in certain types of Christian theology. Um, and my attention was just riveted 
I, I really needed to understand what was going on um, with this rhetoric and this culture. And so there I really began my investigation to try to understand, as you, as you put it, what is this colliding of religion and violence in a certain type of justification of war? And what is the consequence um, of that culture? And what I came to understand is that it has definitive consequences. Uh, in fact, um, the, the way that I put it is that this has the impact of, of mystifying and concealing and even divinizing U.S. ways of war. And further, that that very process of making war sacred disables and inhibits and, and really um, undermines the kind of critical analysis and protest that we needed to bring to bear. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun work, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I I have I had never heard the term moral injury. Moral mm -hmm. injury. What does it mean? What is the genesis of that term? So just to kind of continue with the story about how I moved in my work from sacrificial war culture to moral injury. Um, about 10 years in, and, and this was after I published my first book, which you, which you, which you already named, um, I was invited uh, to be a commissioner at a, an amazing conference that took place um, at Riverside Church in New York City. And this was organized by some very, very early researchers um, on moral injury, um, Rita Nakashima Brock and Gabriella Latini, and they, among other people, invited Jonathan Shea, uh, the eminent um, psychological researcher who worked for decades with Vietnam veterans. Um, and that was the first time I heard the terminology of moral injury. Jonathan Shea coined that term in about 2009. Um, and uh, he spoke about it at that conference. And in addition, the, at that conference, there were both veterans of U.S. wars as well as war correspondents who came to give testimony about their own experiences of war and moral injury was written all over what they had to say in their testimony. Uh, so once again, I, I just found that my, my attention was compelled. And um, at that conference, after listening to Jonathan Shea that particular day, um, I, I, I returned to my hotel room that evening and I, I, I my, my head was swirling and um, I, it, it felt as though this was some kind of a, of a knot that needed to be disentangled. And I, I sat down with a legal pad and started writing down thoughts. And eventually it came to me that if we really paid attention to the moral injury of um, veterans and active duty personnel, we would find it impossible to continue untroubled with our ways of war in the United States. Mm. So, so let me say, let me just say a bit more about about how to define what moral injury is. Please. Um, uh, um, one of the earliest definitions comes from a, a team of psychological researchers who defined moral injury as uh, what happens when someone perpetrates, fails to prevent, or bears witness to acts mm. that deeply transgress moral beliefs and expectations. 
So, so that's a that's a that's an early um, an, an early definition, and again, it's based in psychological frames of understanding. But I want to share two additional definitions with you, if if you don't mind. No, please do. Yes, because, because since um, since two thousand nine, um, moral injury uh, and the research about it has just um, expanded exponentially. Um, in the beginning, it was largely psychological researchers who were trying to understand this. Um, and, you know, part of what Jonathan Shea did that was so important was to, um, to differentiate this from various kinds of mental health pathologies. This moral injury isn't a pathology. Um, it's a different kind of assault. It's a different kind of wound of war. Um, and we can talk a little bit further about how it, it, it both bears similarity in terms of its symptomology with PTSD and how it's really different. But first, let me share these other two definitions with you. One definition that I really appreciate comes from um, Veterans Affairs Chaplain Chris Antal, who leads the moral injury group together with psychologist Peter Yeomans um, at the Michael Crescent's VA hospital in Philadelphia. And here's how he defines moral injury. He says, moral injury is the inevitable consequence of the collision between a person's reflective conscience and the brutally harsh realities of war and killing. So it's a wound, it's a wound that's based in a person's conscious or that erupts as a person's consciousness is faced with painful dissonance yes. that is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to overcome. And then I want to share just one last definition, and this is my own definition because this definition, I think, much more closely identifies moral injury with the distortion of U.S. war culture. So I say that moral injury is the inevitable consequence of participation in the moral distortion of the world that is created by war. Ah. And that is what I want people to understand and, and what I think is really missing to a large degree from much of the, of the ongoing research and conversation about moral injury. It's this, it's this understanding that um, moral injury is not simply an individual experience that belongs to um, uh. discrete individual service members, but it's based in and it's linked to these much deeper structural and cultural rivers of violence in U.S. war culture. Yes, indeed. And there's so much of that. And uh, as, as regular listeners will know, I'm kind of a, a World War One buff. And the I mean, it was unbelievable horror back then. And what what people went in there with the highest of intention and very much nationalism. And then I, I traveled to a lot of the uh, uh, sites of the battles, and there are these huge monuments that are like almost religious sacraments that these people died and suffered and killed for the greater good. This, you know, this almost religious thing that we believe in. So I can imagine that conflicting. I, I just, the, the pain of it. And, you know, I wonder how it is that good moral people 
who often have you know deep religious feelings, especially in these United States, how they can be so yanked away from their traditional ethical base that they can carry out acts which go directly against their prior identity. I wonder if nationalism can be made to serve in the former place of the religion they were brought up in. Your thoughts? I guess I would say that all of that is just very, very deeply mixed up. Um, it's not sort of an either or. Uh -huh. And to, to go back to to your example, I, I too have have studied. Um, it's and it's it's fascinating to me to study war monuments, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. both both in Europe, but but also in the United States. So. For instance, uh, the latest uh, war memorial commemorating World War II mm -hmm. has a huge exhibit uh, at the base of which it says, here we pay the price for freedom. And, and that, that's related to a, um, a, a widespread and completely underestimated um, assumption that um, freedom has to be bought, and it has to be bought with blood. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I as I have written about, this is in direct contrast to what it says in the Declaration of Independence, where life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness are gifts of a beneficent creator, uh. not not things that have to be purchased through blood. But, you know, just as the bumper sticker that is on so many cars reads, freedom isn't free. This is the kind of, and this is the language that I use to describe this. It's a sort of sacrificial exchange logic that something has to be exchanged or destroyed or uh. given up in order for the other thing to be available. And that kind of logic um, is so deeply embedded in our imaginations that we tend not to question it. We just go along with it. Um, and it, it shapes us. Mm. And so to come back to what you were saying then about you know, how is it that people find themselves in the position of engaging in behaviors that really go against their deepest moral um, values? Um, this kind of disciplining, even with this language, is a part of, of, of how and why it becomes justified for them. And, and that disciplining is particularly strong in military cultures, but it's also... I would say at the basis of U.S. nationalism, mm -hmm. uh, it's in it's in our rituals, it's in our practices, it's in our it's in our monuments, um, it's taught to our children in school. <laughs> um, it's 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 both popular and and also deeply formalized. Yeah, and I can just you know I, I can imagine these these suffering veterans, you know, they see these huge glorious monuments. And then that conflicts with what they feel inside. And they, you know, like, I, I can imagine they internalize it and think, oh, it's just me. You know, this is a good thing I was participating in. So they internalize and, and you know, just continue to, to rack themselves with pain because it doesn't, what they feel doesn't fit with what, you know, is, is expressed in these glorious granite huge monuments. Wow. Right. And so and so I wonder what kind of a silencing effect does this have? And right. we know that we know that, um, you know, we, we know that it's 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 extremely common 
um, for people returning from the fields of battle to just not talk about it. Yes. And that in particular um, is true for what's called, you know, the, the greatest generation, those who returned from World War II. And they are among the most sort of glorified and heroicized of all U.S. veterans. And yet simultaneously, the ones who it seems really have had perhaps the most difficult time speaking honestly about their experiences. So it just seems to me that it must be such a dissonance. It must be such a contradiction. And um and I wonder about the way in which that exacerbates mm. their 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 sense of of moral injury. I'm, um, I'm sure uh, it does. I'm sure it does. And uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is uh, Kelly Denton Borhaug, who is professor. Global Religions Department, co-director of Peace and Justice Studies, minor and executive director of In Focus Centers of Investigation at Moravian University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And we're talking about uh, uh, her new book, uh, And Then Your Soul is Gone, Moral Injury and the U.S. War Culture. And as I read your work, I was reminded of a college friend whose name I just with the help of other alumni remembered. Bob Mira was his name. This was 1970. He had recently come back from America's war in Vietnam. And after a few beers, he would open up and talk about what he saw, and he cried. Oh, did he cry. And I, I still feel the pain as he told us about his personal experience with the Hmong tribesmen of the Indochinese backwoods. Nowadays, they're referred to as the Mayo people, M-E-O. So innocent, he said, as he cried. They were not of the 20th century. Yet destruction and death was brought to their thatched huts. So innocent, he'd repeat through his agony. He was indeed suffering terribly. A good guy, a moral guy. I saw the outward effects of his pain, but what have you learned about such awful pain? Was it guilt or shame or PTSD or, or, or something else? Uh, th that memory will never, ever leave me. And it just, it shook me up. Talk about that, please. You know, but yeah, um, before, I mean, before responding directly to your question, I just want to say how, um, how important it is that you listen to him and that somehow made available the space in which he could he could cry and he could you know speak honestly about his experience and and um how devastating it was to him and and also let you know how absolutely unimaginably devastating it was to those victims and targets of war so we'll have to return to that because i really do believe that creating that space and I would call it even a holy space where those truths can be uttered and they can be heard and received. That is a very important way forward in terms of, of us both individually as well as a nation coming to grips with the phenomenon of moral injury. Mm. I've come to understand that, in fact, there are some distinct similarities in terms of the symptoms that people experience who are suffering with PTSD and those who are struggling with moral injury. PTSD has been named as a, uh, a mental health um, condition 
Um, it's in the, the, the diagnostic manual um, of psychology. Moral injury isn't. And um, actually, I'm, I, I think maybe that is a good thing because as I, as I noted in my article, uh, one of the ways that we distance ourselves from people who are struggling with moral injury is to pathologize them. Yes. Um, they have these, their lives are, have fallen apart. They're experiencing this terrible suffering. They find themselves unable to function. They're having trouble with their relationships. They may be hypervigilant. They, um, they may be danger seeking. They may struggle with addiction. They may become suicidal, all, all of these things and more. And there are similar kinds of symptoms that move between PTSD and moral injury. Um, but, but the cause is, 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 is really different. PTSD has been identified as arising from traumatic experience and um, being characterized in particular by a kind of hypervigilance and anxiety instead of fears. But moral injury, moral injury really needs to be distinguished in, in important ways from PTSD. And here's where I find that the level of, of soul, the description of this as a as an invisible soul wound of war has become important and helpful for me in, in my own understanding. So um, Iraq war veteran and, and writer Kevin Powers, who, um, who wrote the wonderful novel, The Yellowbirds, describes it as acid seeping down into your soul and then your soul is gone. And I've, I've really thought a great deal about this language of soul and why that language comes to the surface and, and what it means. And I'm not sure I fully understand it yet, but what I do, what I do take away is that the fact that this language of soul is used by those themselves who struggle with this so often is a way, it, it, it gives evidence to, to, to the way in which they're reaching for language that can help describe how deeply this penetrates. It, it's, it's a moral wound that goes, a moral assault that goes to the very core of their beings. Uh, and in fact, it eviscerates their moral core. And, and one of the outcomes of that is that um, as, as research and as people who struggle with this also articulate, they lose the ability to trust anything, oh. including themselves. There, there's nothing left in the world to trust anymore. Um, and it's, it's hard to imagine how, how terrifying and awful that must be for people. Um, but but your, your, story, um, your story is really an evocative example of, of what that looks like and sounds like. Because he didn't want to do that. He had nothing against these tribesmen, you know, the Hmong people. And and yet it's what happened, and I can imagine the incredible cognitive dissonance between, you know, on one hand you have greater society saying, "This is good. You're a hero. You did something good, something very good." You know, sacrificing other people as well. You know, and and this destruction was for the greater good. So therefore, it's you. If you don't feel this pride and this, uh, you know, rush of nationalism and, 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 you know, feeling glad for what you did, then it's you. 
you have a problem. And I can imagine how that acid just, uh, you know, eats at the soul. I can just imagine. And we, you know, we Americans like to think of ourselves as good people. And I think, you know, the percentage of people of faith is much higher in America than in most countries. Religion is often a large community. It's, it's deeply connecting many of us with very clear guideposts and reassurances, we feel what you describe as a shared moral covenant. And in what ways does, as you write, the world of modern war not only destroy the foundations of life for its targets and victims, but also for its perpetrators? What is it about modern wars which might differentiate them in this way from wars of previous centuries? Well, it's first important to to note that moral injury, even though the terminology is new, the phenomenon isn't. Uh-huh. There have been lots of other words in earlier eras to try to get at something very similar. So the language of being shell-shocked, for instance, right. now people connect that also with with moral injury. And and some some scholars have have traced the phenomenon of moral injury all the way back to ancient Greece. Oh, yeah. So so people think that it it really probably has been along as long as um, uh. since, since human beings invented and constructed ways of war. And I always think that that's an important um, an important part of this story to emphasize because I find in my in my teaching especially that. There are so many people in the United States that believe that war is simply inevitable and that it's an inescapable part of human nature. And they, they forget that, that we invented it. <laughs> and while it has accompanied human life over the ages, um, it's always a construction that human beings build as a part of our social worlds. And what that means is that we have choices that we could, that we could make about it. Um, and so I just think that that's really important to emphasize, but getting back to your question, there, there perhaps are elements about modern ways of war that, uh, even further exaggerate the, the damage and destruction to laborers of war on the front line to those who experience moral injury for, so for example, we might think about the power and the world annihilating potential of modern weaponry. Um, one of the elements of uh, our post 9-11 wars is um, the prevalence of what's called traumatic brain injury. I'm not an expert in that, but um, that has been identified as uh, being a, a particularly terrible consequence that so many people have suffered from as a, as a result of these wars. The long and the multiple deployments that people have experienced. And we might also mention just the sheer breadth and depth of U.S. armed violence across so many places in the world. Yes. So the, yes. the cost war um, project from Brown University provides evidence for the fact that between just over two years from 2018 to 2020, the U.S. government undertook what it called counterterrorism activities in at least 85 countries. Um, so, I, I, again, I wonder about 
you know, this, this is our reality. This is U.S. Um, war and war culture. And um, I wonder about the ways in which all of these different factors don't exaggerate and exacerbate mm. uh, the more injury of war, as well as many other injuries. Uh, and certainly, you know, there's always the concern about boots on the ground, that, you know, our, our presidents want to do whatever they can to avoid boots on the ground because our soldiers, our people, get physically hurt. So we have uh, drone attacks, which have done a heck of a lot of damage, and there's somebody back at some computer, who knows where, directing these drone attacks. And in Vietnam, there were the very high B-52 uh, bombs, which oftentimes actually hit hospitals in northern Vietnam. And the, the people are distant from that, physically distant from that. And I wonder if that helps prevent moral injury or actually exacerbates it because, you know, they know somebody is being, you know, killed or dismembered. But I, I wonder, you know, there's that new tactic of, you know, keeping away from boots on the ground. Your thoughts on that? Right. Um, I don't think it is preventing um, the incidence of, of moral injury. And it, in some cases, it may be making it even worse. So, for example, I would direct your listeners to the case of Daniel Hale and um, the letter that he recently wrote to the judge who um, assigned him 45 months in prison for um, violating the Espionage Act when he released information about the U.S. drone program, uh-huh. because he believed that um, he believed that people in the United States were being disinformed by the U.S. government about what was really happening. Um, that letter is so worth reading; it's 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 simply heart wrenching. And he, I don't know if Daniel Hale knows about moral injury, but. As I read that letter, I thought it had moral injury written all over it because he talks about his own work as a drone operator and how over time um, he simply could not live with what he saw from this remote safe space as he was participating in, in really just unremitting and horrifying violence. And um, so, and, and I, I address other cases in my book as well. Yes. and. In, in addition to um, to the the, dr- the drone operations, there's also evidence that people who are involved in our maintenance of nuclear weapons um, mm. are also experiencing moral injury. Um, there's a, a again a heart wrenching and powerful story in um, another reader on moral injury. Um, it's called Moral Injury: A Reader edited by Bob Maher and Douglas Pryor. And this story recounts the case of, a, of, a, of an officer who was tasked with maintaining nuclear weapons um, at a military base and um, who went about his job doing his work every day, writing his reports and monitoring these weapons. And then suddenly one day he's just cut to the core. And I I think he uses the language of feeling sort of sliced apart because he realizes that he's participating in something that could lead to the annihilation of the entire planet. Mm. And he said that on that day, he lost his innocence and his world began to fall apart. That's moral injury. 
So moral injury, it's not only about, um, it's not only about acts. It's not only about committing acts that one believes to be heinous and immoral. It's also about simply being witness to, again, what I want to call the moral distortion of the world that is created by war. People who witness this, and because moral injury has also been identified as happening in the lives of war correspondents um, and healthcare people. Um, uh, moral injury is experienced by these people too because, because of being exposed to, being witnesses to, um, right. seeing the kinds of things that they see. Maybe that also applies to your friend from 1970. I, I don't know if this was just something that he witnessed or something that he actually participated in. But so it's important for us to understand the sort of breadth and, and depth of moral injury. And, and that's why I, I yes. really would like people to understand the links between moral injury and much deeper structures and cultures of violence. Yeah, it's about, um, it's about policy, I think. We have to look at policy. And right now, it seems like, yeah, the policy's good. It's just these individuals who are you know, uh, weak or something like that. And, uh, you know, just, just blaming them. And so they internalize it and eat at themselves. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Kelly Denton Borhaug, who uh, has written an article on Tom Dispatch titled Moral Injury and the Forever Wars, What Americans Don't Want to Hear. And I often think what we don't want to hear is exactly what we should hear. Um, moral injury, you know, it, it feels very personal and people feel isolated. As such, the individuals are highly likely to keep it inside, keep up appearances, to fit into society, to look like a man, a strong man. Tell us about Andy, a veteran of the Iraq war. What was the secret eating at him? And further question, in what ways does his story clarify a reality that Americans badly need to grasp. Andy, what about him? So I first um, I first saw and heard Andy at a, a church in Philadelphia on Veterans Day a number of years ago. Um, he had been invited to testify at that church as a part of a unique moral injury program the, the same one that I mentioned led by Chris Antal and Peter Yeomans at the Michael Crescent's VA hospital in Philadelphia. Uh, and um, part of that program uh, culminates, it's about a 12 week program and it culminates in week 10 with um, a community ceremony that brings together veterans who are in the program with members of the wider communities, their families and friends, but also civilians who have expressed willingness to listen to what they have to say. Yes, listening. And, uh, the, 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 the veterans who testify are, are invited to testify in response to two questions. What do you need to unburden yourself of is one question. And the second one is, what does the wider community need to hear? Yes. So Andy was um, from a proud military family. He, he, he had members of his family going back generations who also served in military branches. He was in the Air Force for 11 years. But when he returned, um, and he enlisted when he was just 17. When he returned to the United States, he was just deeply, deeply troubled. And 
for eight years, he bounced around between different medical caregivers without experiencing any relief. Um, and sort of as a last-ditch effort, he was recommended to this new moral injury group. Um, they, they had somewhat of an unorthodox approach that was unlike, I suppose, other approaches that Andy had experienced. So they, they told Andy that he had an important story to tell and that the nation needed to hear it, to bear its brunt of the burden for sending him to war. And in that program, after a few weeks, Andy, for the first time in eight years since returning to the United States, told the experience that really was at the root of his own loss of soul. And that was him participating to call in an airstrike that resulted in the deaths of 36 Iraqis, including men, women, and children. Oh, God. And he told us about that experience um, in that Philadelphia church. And his anguish was just, um, you know, so palpable. He said, uh, you know, I remember so distinctly even specific words that he used. He said, this is etched, this, the, the smell and the sights and the sounds of this death are etched on the back of my eyelids forever. So after the airstrike, his, his orders were to go into the bombed out structure and find the, the target. But instead he came upon all these lifeless bodies of um, people who he described as proud Iraqis, including a little girl with a singed Minnie Mouse doll. Mm. He said that that was the moment where he felt his soul leave his body. And he used that language. Um, but, you know, the, yeah, it's, it was just an incredibly powerful and, and important, but also really difficult, just like you described with your friend, experience um, to be a part of, but increasingly one that I believe is the obligation of all of us who are U.S. citizens. We, this, this is also our responsibility. It's not. It doesn't simply belong to our leaders. We are. We are the passive, all too passive, um, what supporters and. Um, defenders and um what we, we we make all this possible to continue by not getting involved in stopping it no. <laughs> you know? yeah and just sort of uh keeping our heads down and, and going quietly and uh gosh i know for a long time one way that uh black people in the united states uh got along was just keep your head down don't say anything and then the injustice continued and it's it's you know right. it's, it's that's the easiest step to just keep it down, but people get hurt hurt really badly. But there is promise in in Andy's story because oh, and, and and in, and in this program. And I, I want to also say that there are other really important centers uh, in the United States where people are really working very hard to address moral injury. There's the, the Shea Center, um, and there is the Moral Repair Center that's affiliated with Bright Theological um, Seminary. So. And, and others as well. Um, so, so that's part of the promise. But with respect to the moral injury group at the Crescent VA, the leaders of this program communicate to people like Andy that they have what they call a prophetic role to play in U.S. society by gathering their courage to tell the truth about what has happened and what they need to unburden themselves on. And 
in, in disemburden themselves of. And for Andy, um, that very process is it's it's not that this goes away <laughs> uh, it doesn't go away right. but people find the means to live with it and be less destroyed by it and um for andy that meant moving from feeling absolutely imprisoned by guilt to such an extent that he believed that the only way out was to take his own life and the, the moral injury group was his last-ditch effort, he told us, at the Philadelphia Church. If that didn't work, it was over. He was, he was going to do it. Yeah. But he was moving from feeling imp- imprisoned by guilt to being, as he said, empowered by it. To, to tell the truth to the rest of us. And, um, and since then, Andy and other veterans in this same program are doing some remarkable work in Philadelphia. They are reconnecting with Iraqi refugees of war. Um, they have built this remarkable structure at the this Google Center called. Um, oh, I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna mangle the Iraqi name for it, but it's it's a communal structure built with reeds, and its purpose is for people to come and engage in various kinds of communal acts of community building and restoration. Um, Andy engaged in a, a beehive um, entrepreneurial business with some of the war refugees from Iraq, and they are donating honey to people in need in Philadelphia. So there definitely is promise, um, but um, there's also just so much work to do with respect to people of the U.S. opening their ears and really being willing to question themselves and um, their own nationalistic as well as religious formation. Seeing what they felt in a, in a greater context, in a different context than just, uh, you know, oh, toughen up, you know, you did something good, you're fighting for uh, national uh, security, whatever, and taking out the bad guys. Uh, and so, you know, it, it tends to be delegitimized, clearly. And to, to, to hear that, I think, to be able to listen to it, as with any psychological injury, you know, to feel listened to is extremely important. And, and I'm of the age that, you know, I was a veteran of the war against the war in Vietnam. And I, I regret very much how many of the veterans coming back from Vietnam were treated. I mean, the, the stories were greatly exaggerated, but people did call uh, the returning vets baby killers. And uh, they're they're made, you know, the stories of veterans being spit on. I've this it's unclear as to whether that ever actually happened, but it, it seems like such things did re-victimize them. And I'm wondering, you know, does that uh, it, 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 can it be, you know, because they they felt it themselves there. And I wonder if, as you say, the majority of us failed to take any responsibility for the consequences of the endless wars. I wonder, in addition to hearing them and being open to what they're feeling and allowing that, you know, creating that space for that to be expressed, I wonder if veterans returning from Vietnam and now Iraq and Afghanistan 
I wonder if it might be uh, therapeutic, healthier to focus anger not at themselves, but at the policy, at the men who sent them there from LBJ and Nixon to Bush and Obama. What, what about that? Could that be therapeutic for them and, frankly, the right thing to do? Because, you know, these are controversial policies, to put it mildly. What do you think? Right, right. To, to start trying to answer that wonderful question or set of questions, really, <laughs> that you just posed, we distance ourselves. And, and once again, here I'm drawing from the work of Antal and Yeomans. We distance ourselves by valorizing, pathologizing, or demonizing active duty and service members. So we, we put them into these different boxes. And I actually think that the, the process of valorizing and the distancing impact of that is one of the least well understood of all three of those distancing mechanisms. But I, I also want to say a word about the demonizing. And, you know, it does and it did happen. There's one really wrenching account of this in a memoir written by Claudanshin Thomas, who is a Vietnam veteran who eventually went on to become a Buddhist monk. And he talks about returning from Vietnam and walking through an airport and the experience of being spit upon by a, a very attractive young woman. So I don't know about the extent to which all of these things happened, but I think it's important for us to acknowledge that all of these different distancing, rejecting mechanisms did and do happen. Um, but in terms of in terms of what you're saying um, with regard to a, a deeper and a more all-encompassing and less individualistic response, yes. Um, this and this is why this is why I I I really hope and I'm really trying to connect the dots and help others connect the dots between people's individual experiences of moral injury and the deeper realities of of our war culture that um, are at the root and that provide the sort of toxic mulch in which moral injury can grow. Um, I, it has become very clear to me that without addressing the deeper structures and culture of war, including all of the policies, um, we, we, we will not make headway in terms of sufficiently addressing it. And so one thing I might just say I have traced the sort of disingenuous political rhetoric of both Democratic and Republican presidents and other leaders all throughout the post 9-11 period. And the one thing that I can say that unites all of them is the disingenuousness. And now we're experiencing it again from President Biden, who um, made a speech about the end of the Afghanistan war that I just found to be incredibly disingenuous in which he tried to reassure U.S. citizens that, quote, we went to war with clear goals and, quote, we achieved those objectives, while so many other analysts and scholars are tracing uh, the ways in which whatever end of this war is taking place. And frankly, it's not clear that the violence is going to end at all. Okay. It's a very dishonest end. And so it, once again, how confusing must this environment be for service members and veterans who swim in this toxic environment of this disingenuous language 
from from leaders that they have been trained and frankly required to yes. uphold and revere. Uh, and, and, and so I, I really do believe that it's up to all citizens to call out the disinformation and, and the dishonesty and to, you know, to name the, the deeper structures. And, and by structures, I refer to, for instance, the sheer amount of money that goes into the maintenance of, of our war culture, yeah. more than half of discretionary budget. And, and that's just a start. It's really even much, much bigger than that. Or, for instance, what um, Chal- uh, Chalmers Johnson first called the, the, the empire of U.S. international bases, over 800 oh, yeah. uh, scattered across the world. And that's completely disproportionate with respect to international bases of other sovereign nations. Or the fact that we spend more than, some scholars have estimated, we spend more than the next 10 highest spenders, uh, military spenders, combined. So uh, these are the kinds of structures, and, and, it, and it seems as though all of this is so deeply embedded in our culture yes. and in our, our structures of government that um, very, very few are willing to criticize or raise questions about it. I appreciate the way that Bernie Sanders Yes. has raised questions about this but but that's relatively new in in my experience and um even his voice is is all too easily drowned out yes indeed and and you say moral injury is a flashpoint that reveals important truths about our wars and the war culture that goes with it and therefore must not be seen it seems clear that you know it, we've been willing to accept painfully this this spate of suicides, these people internalizing it, being eaten alive by their own memories, the acid that eats at their soul. We haven't been able to do that. And let me ask, as a final question, what you ask, if this nation truly esteemed them, these veterans, wouldn't we do more to avoid placing them in just the kind of circumstances Andy faced? Wouldn't our leaders work harder to find other ways of dealing with whatever dangers we confront? End of your quote. So does the real answer, in addition to treating the individuals by listening to them, by really listening to them and and showing that we care about them, is part of the answer of veteran suicide, does it not require looking squarely at and reconsidering our militaristic, nationalistic culture. It does. It does. And to, to take that even further, I'm remembering um, a line from another person I, I spoke with recently um, ab- about all this, who said, um, Americans know the suffering, but they can't feel the suffering. And, and I was reminded, I think that's absolutely true. And I was reminded um, by the work of, of Robert Lifton, and his development of the concept of psychic numbing mm-hmm. that he believes characterizes our culture in the United States, especially with respect to war. Um, and, and he analyzed the way in which our inability to fear is especially related to our development and use of the violence of atomic weapons. I think psychic numbing is at the root of the distancing that citizens unconsciously exercise with regard to U.S. war and militarization. And I guess to close, what I would say is 
I would love to encourage us to think much more deeply about how we understand violence and how deeply shaped we are by violence. I think U.S. Americans mostly are profoundly naive about the way that violence works Mm. and about how difficult it is to control violence. We act as if, and we, I think, teach and believe that violence is, is like a tool, it's an instrument that we can pick up either individually or collectively and then set down again without being impacted by it. But what moral injury teaches us is that that is not that that's a lie. That's not correct. That violence can't be controlled. It has a way of penetrating much more deeply and impacting everyone, including those who perpetrate it. And everyone is wounded and dehumanized by it just in different ways. And so if once again, if as citizens What we say is that notions of equality are fundamental to how we understand ourselves as people. How is it that we are so wedded to the dehumanizing ways of violence that so characterize our nation and our culture? Can we think more deeply about all of that? So what what I think is really called for is not only a change in structures, but also a change in culture that we, we need to identify and really raise much deeper questions about these um, these subterranean deep assumptions and 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 sets of of naive assumptions that that characterize us. Well, with every problem, there is opportunity, and and this is shining a light into areas that does open up real real opportunities. Uh, the book is called "And Then Your Soul Is Gone: Moral Injury and U.S. World Culture." Uh, Moral, and then your soul is gone. Moral injury and U.S. war culture. We can do more to prevent these suicides that are happening if we really open our eyes and take a look at it and uh, look at the culture and what new direction we can go in. Thank you so much, Kelly Denton Borhaug, for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Important stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much. Will I live tomorrow? Just can't say Will I live tomorrow? Well, I just can't say Thing I know for sure I don't live today No sun coming through my window Is I will at the bottom of a grave Time like this.